0: Back in May of 2022, uh, we had our first edition of Top of the Charts sermon series where we explored the theology to be found in popular music and in that first series we talked about the music of U2 and Johnny Cash and Taylor Swift and our Christian artist named Stephanie Gretzinger and we spent our time in that series focusing on the ways in which uh, spirituality is expressed through music. I'm going to go in a, in a little bit of a different direction today. I want to talk about the power of popular music both uh, to call for and to influence social change, specifically when it when it comes to matters of justice. Now, this is not of course the primary reason that we listen to popular music, but this aspect of popular music has a long and influential history. And in my own life, several of my favorite artists have, uh, over the years, given us songs that, that resonate with calls for change. And I personally have always found this kind of music to be compelling. So for example, um, I, I love the music of Prince growing up. He was my favorite artist. And my first real introduction to socially oriented music was the title track. Of his 1987 uh, album "Sign of the Times," and that song was a, a social commentary about life in the late 1980s. It still resonates with me today. And through the years, I've found meaning in a, in a variety of music intended to um, inspire social change. "Fight the Power" by a group called Public Enemy falls into this category, uh, as does "Redemption Song" by Bob Marley and the Wailers. "What's Going On" by Marvin Gaye captured the the angst of the late 1960s and early 1970s. And all of these songs have been on my playlists through the years. Now, this is entirely dependent, of course, upon uh, your musical tastes and perhaps to a lesser uh, extent your generation. But you may be drawn to uh, Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan or Imagine by John Lennon or, um, for the younger crowd, All Right by Kendrick Lamar and Pharrell Williams. Well. One of the earliest and most powerful songs in this genre is one that that many modern folks have never heard. Uh, In March of 1939, 23-year-old Billie Holiday stepped to the mic at a cafe in New York City to sing her final song of the evening. And ahead of time, she had asked the waiters to stop serving during this last song. And she had asked that the room be made completely dark except for a spotlight on her face. And in the darkness uh, and in the quiet, she began these haunting lyrics that are adapted from a poem of the same name. She sang, Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black body swinging in the breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. And when the song was over, um, the spotlight was turned off. Everybody kind of sat in, in quiet in the dark. And when the house lights came back up, the stage was empty and there, there was no encore. And Holiday would continue this tradition for the next 20 years until her untimely death at the age of 44, always ending her sets uh, with this first anthem of what would be called, or what would become rather, the Civil Rights Movement. In 1999, as the century turned, Time Magazine called Strange Fruit the song of the century. Now surely, for as long as human beings have been singing, uh, music has had the power at times to confront us, to challenge us, to call us, to be better versions of ourselves. And that's certainly the case with the song and the artist that we are featuring today. We'll get to that shortly, but before we do, Let's talk about our, our scripture passage for this morning, which comes from the earliest book of Israel's prophets. And there's an important point to be made here um, about the role of the biblical prophet. Prophets were not uh, primarily, anyway, interested in telling the future. That was not their primary role. Uh, they, they did indeed warn God's people about the ultimate consequences of not heeding their warnings, but those predictions were entirely secondary to their primary task, which was um, to call God's people to account, because prophets at their core are, are agents of social justice. And now, Look, I know that our modern uh, partisan politics has made the term social justice a little bit loaded, but biblically speaking, uh, it simply means God's people living in accordance with God's will, honoring our covenantal responsibilities to love God and others through the way we live our lives and the way that we act. And as we read the history of our faith in the Old and New Testaments, it's, it's clear uh, that we struggle with these responsibilities. We always have. And so it's the prophet's task to confront us, to uh, challenge us, to call us to be better versions of ourselves. So our reading for today um, is actually a recommended text for later in the year, but we're gonna go ahead and read it now. It's Amos chapter five. I'm gonna read the first three verses, uh, 18 to 20 now, and we'll come back and read the rest later. Um, Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the prophet, Amos. And just as a reminder, if you've never read the prophets, um, they're not the most cheerful group of people in the world. So this is going to be a, a challenging reading. Alas, for you who desire the day of the Lord. This Bible here is a different version. It's the um, the New English Bible. And in this one, it says, fools who long for the day of the Lord. I'm like, dang, Amos. Okay. Uh, but It actually says, oy, for you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if someone uh, fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light and gloom with no brightness in it? The word of the Lord. (laughs) for the people of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I shouldn't say it like that. It is the word of the Lord, but it's a challenging one. Now, if you spend too much, if you spend much time reading the prophets, and I'll I'll say for myself, I I can't spend too much time in the prophets, but if you do uh, read uh, the prophets, you quickly discover that they don't really care much about our feelings. (laughs) They are trying to get our attention, and they're trying to get our attention so that we might become the people God wants us to be because I mean, let's just be honest here. In the words of the Apostle Paul, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that. And collectively, we sometimes fall far short of the glory of God in some ways. And so the prophets are are not our buddies. They're like our faith coaches. And they're usually a lot more like Bobby Knight than they are Ted Lasso, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Like Billie Holiday closing her concerts for 20 years with Strange Fruit the prophets confront us, they, they challenge us, they call us to be better versions of ourselves. And what we know is that they've always been part of Israel's history, uh, well, since almost the beginning. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy specifically names Moses as Israel's first prophet. And there were several important prophets in the centuries after him, including Elijah and his student, Elisha, um, but, but Amos marks the beginning of what scholars call the era of classical prophecy in Israel. This was the era when um, instead of just including their stories in the narrative books uh, like First and Second Kings, as in the case of Elijah, for example, Collections of their oracles and preaching were gathered into books that were um, named after the prophets who proclaimed them. Eventually, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel would emerge as the major prophets uh, in Israel's history, and those are the names that we probably immediately recognize. But this genre actually begins with Amos, uh, whose ministry was in the middle of the 8th century BC. Unlike the more well-known figures who would follow him, Amos was not a clergy person. He was not a priest in the temple. He was not an advisor to the king. He was not um, a professional prophet in any way. Instead, he was a simple farmer and herdsman who was called by God to, to preach a message of repentance, which means uh, simply to turn around, turn back towards God. He, he called God's people to morality. He called God's people to, to God's vision of justice, to concern for the outcast and the oppressed. In other words, um, he called God's people to obey the law of Moses. Amos' historical context would eventually become uh, a recurring story throughout history. It was a time of prosperity for the few at the expense of the many. It was a time when God's people had forgotten their responsibilities to one another. And the vision that God gives Amos is one of um, a day of judgment, a, a day of the Lord is the, what, is the way that Amos describes it, when God uh, would punish those who ignored God's law. Now, just fun, fun Bible trivia, um, our passage for today is the earliest reference in the Bible to judgment day. This is the first time this concept shows up. And in Amos's view, if God's people did not repent and change their ways, turn back to God, the day of the Lord, as we just read, would be a day of darkness, not light, a day of gloom with no brightness in it. Sam Cooke was one of the most influential soul artists of all time. He he was and still is considered by many to be the king of soul, uh, influencing an entire generation of artists. He was a preacher's kid and he began his career as a gospel singer uh, with a group called the Soul Stirrers. Uh, he was so gifted that uh, this year, Rolling Stone named him the, the number three person on its list of the 200 greatest singers of all time. Billy Holiday was number four right after him. During his brief eight year career, he released 29 singles that, that charted in the Billboard Top 40 including You Send Me. Most of us know that song. And Wonderful World, a song probably made more popular by Louis Armstrong. But it was, the, it was the single that was released posthumously that remains his most enduring contribution to American culture. And it was prompted by an experience that he had in October of 1963. So he was on tour and uh, they were driving. They were going to spend the night in Shreveport, Louisiana. And he called a hotel to make a reservation for himself and for his wife. He got the reservation, but when he arrived at the front desk and the front desk clerk saw that he was black, uh, that clerk suddenly discovered that there were no rooms available. And so loudly protesting and and hurling insults and blaring his car horn, the group that uh, Cook was in drove away from this hotel. They drove downtown to a hotel that would accept black travelers. And when he arrived, the police were waiting for him. and they arrested him for disturbing the peace. Now, at this point of his life, he's in his early 30s, um, Sam Cooke had been inspired by Bob Dylan's blowing in the wind, so much so that he had begun incorporating it into his concert repertoire. And he'd also been profoundly impacted by Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, which had happened just a couple of months earlier in August of 1963. And so in the wake of this incident in a hotel in Shreveport, which was for him yet another indignity in a, in a society that was wrestling to become a better version of itself, Cook wrote our song for this morning, A Change Is Gonna Come. He told his friends uh, that the song came to him in a dream. He wrote the lyrics and music in December of 1963. Uh, he had a collaborator set it to a symphonic arrangement. If you've never heard this song, I'd highly encourage you to download it. It's a big, big production. It was recorded in January of 1964. Cook performed it for the first time the the next month on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And as it turned out, that would be his only live performance of what would become his most famous, his most enduring masterpiece. We'll get back to Cook shortly, but uh, for now let's finish our scripture reading. Uh, which stays just as intense as where, where we left off. So this is Amos chapter five, verses 21 to 24. This is God talking through Amos. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them and the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amen. In this uh, earliest example of what our faith history calls classical prophecy, in this this earliest book dedicated to the preaching of our biblical prophets, Amos gives us what, what will end up becoming a common theme. This shows up over and over again in the rest of the books of the prophets and it's a, it's a recurring warning of our faith. He says, essentially, uh, don't think that God is confused by our performance. God will not be mocked. If you, if you say the right prayers and sing the right songs and give the right gifts, but then walk out the doors of the sanctuary and ignore the way God wants you to live. It's a tough message. (laughs) It's an important message, but it's a tough message. The prophets were not the most popular kids on the block. Many of them ended, uh, their ministries ended in in difficult circumstances, but it's an important message in scripture to confront us and to, to challenge us and to call us to be to be better versions of ourselves. Not to be sure, of course, God wants our prayers. <laughs> God wants our songs, God wants our gifts. Of course, those are all important parts of who we are as people of God, but God also desires, and in the words of Micah, chapter six, verse eight, which is on this stole, God also requires that we, that we live in accordance with the teachings and the, and the commandments and the laws of God, which as we all know, Jesus summarized to the fundamental two, love God and love neighbor. And in the biblical tradition, what we, what we call social justice is what life looks like when we're obeying those commandments, when our lives are lived in accordance with God's vision for the world. And Amos's last words in our passage today, I'm guessing are familiar to you let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. You've probably heard that before, if not uh, from the mouth of Amos particularly, then in popular culture, because it's a scripture that's quoted by MLK in his I Have a Dream speech, uh, which was delivered in August of 1963, two months before the incident that inspired Sam Cooke uh, to write one of the most powerful calls for social change in the 20th century. A change is gonna come has left an enduring cultural legacy. It it immediately became an anthem of the civil rights movement um, and it's been a recurring fixture in pop culture ever since. The first time I heard it was actually in a movie in 1992, Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Uh, Denzel Washington's brilliant in that. He plays Malcolm X and the song appears in the scene where he's driving to the Audubon ballroom at the end of the movie where he would be assassinated. And I was totally captivated by this song the first time I heard it 30 years ago. James Taylor sang a beautiful version of it on the television show The West Wing in 2004. Most recently uh, Leslie Odom Jr. sang it uh, in his portrayal of Cook in the movie, uh, 20, in the 2020 movie One Night in Miami in a reenactment of that time, the one and only time that Cook sang it live. And it's not just in movies and TV shows that it appears. In 2007, it was added to the Library of Congress for being, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically important. In the 2021 edition of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time, it was voted number three. And the words, a change is gonna come, are on the wall of the contemplative court in the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Tragically, though, Sam Cooke did not live to see the impact of his masterpiece, this powerful uh, example of a genre of music that that confronts us and challenges us and calls us to be better versions of ourselves. Because on December 11th, 1964, uh, just two weeks before the song was released as a single, he was fatally shot at the age of 33 by the manager of a Los Angeles motel. It was not a racially motivated killing, but it was a very confusing incident that was ruled a justifiable homicide, and at his funeral in Chicago, 200,000 people lined up for four city blocks to view his body, and then at a second service in Los Angeles, Ray Charles sang, the angels keep watching over me, in tribute to one of the most influential artists of his age. Whenever I do a, a devotional, um, like read through the Bible kind of thing, which I do f- frequently, and I get bogged down in the prophets, I, I get tired of the prophets <laughs> because it's, it's, hard, it's hard reading the prophets. But I'm grateful for their role in our salvation history. And I'm, I'm grateful for those artists who choose to be prophetic from time to time through their music because as people of God, we are called to be better. <laughs> as people of God, we are, we are called to make the world better and we need these reminders. As people of God, we are called to change what needs changing. May it be so, amen.